calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole for Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score. Gage with a shot! Sheringham! Name on the trophy! Beckham. It's a Sheringham! And Solskjaer has done it! Ready! Welcome to the Sports Haven, a podcast where I speak to athletes, coaches, sports scientists and sports psychologists to find out what are the secrets in achieving high performance. Today on the show, I'm privileged yet again to be joined by another of Ireland's finest athletes, a three-time Olympian, our world champion. It is, of course, Dervil O'Rourke. Thanks for taking the time, Dervil. Well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here talking all things sport. I suppose the first question I have for you. Since retiring, obviously, you launched your healthy lifestyle site. You cover topics such as fitness, nutrition, pregnancy exercise, self-care. At what point did you begin thinking about this transition post-athlete or sport, if you like? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. Um, when I started out in my career, I think my career was different to a lot of people in that as a junior athlete, I didn't have a very straightforward path to having the career that I had. So what I mean by that is like, I was never necessarily like talent ID'd as like, oh, hey, you can go on and go to three Olympics or do whatever. So because of that, I think I always, athletics was almost my plan B. So I always had a plan A and like my parents were very pro that. So when I started off, like in 2000, there was an Olympics on and loads of people I knew went to that Olympic games. I obviously didn't and I started my degree so I think I was always putting the foundations together for when track wouldn't be my job um even when I was running really well I was doing other stuff so the year I ran my Irish record in 2010 I did a master's in business management um did my degree finished in 2003 then did a postgrad in between I went to cookery school I worked a few jobs um during my 12 year, 12 kind of 14 year career. So for me, that transition, it wasn't like it was a sudden thing. It was always a very realistic um, plan. Like it was always like, this is going to end. The longer it goes on, the luckier I am. But there's a reality that like, I could go out to track in the morning and rupture my Achilles and never run again. Like it's a very, um, it's a very fickle career. So to where I am now, I think I would have started building that like right back probably 20 years ago. Like um, it's mad. There was not one thing. It's not like I did one course that got me to do this. I just did multiple things throughout my athletic. I think my athletics career is like the foundation for a lot of how I think and my mindset. Um, but all the practical stuff definitely comes from stuff that I was doing off track. That's a really long answer. I'm sorry. It's perfect. I suppose... Having spent over 12 years as an athlete, when you did step away in 2014, was there any sense of who am I now? I think for me, I made a conscious decision at some point in my career that I wouldn't wrap up my entire value in, in it. Probably um, when things went really badly a few times, I decided it was really important to me, but actually it wasn't the be all and end all of life. So for me, when I decided to retire, I retired with a real sense of like, I achieved way more than I would have set out at the start of my career. And 
I was really fortunate with the career I had. Like I didn't retire and feel hard done by. I retired and I felt like, wow, that was amazing that I was able to do that and get that. It definitely wouldn't have been what I would have thought when I was 12 years old watching Olympics thinking I just want to go to an Olympics. So, um, so, the, so the loss of identity, I don't think really happened massively. I think the only part of it that I really struggled with was the level, I kind of guess, of disposability. So like I announced my retirement in June um, 2014 and there was just a lot of people I never heard from again, you know, it's 2020 now. So, you know, people, you know, who were working within the sport. And I think I knew that, I knew that that was the reality. Um, I also knew the way I went about my career. I was very self-motivated. I was very driven. I was very, I viewed myself as my own high performance manager. Um, and I think when you're like that, um, you're not as fluffy maybe as other people. And I certainly wasn't fluffy. Um, you know, I wasn't going for cups of teas and chats with people and telling everybody they're great. I wasn't. That wasn't how I, how I went about my career. So um, I think I was, I, looking back, I was probably a bit hurt that when I retired that I felt quite disposable. Um, but now I look back and I think, I just don't take it personally. Um, and I think possibly because I'm in business now and I have my own business. And I look back at some of the people that maybe I would have expected a little more from. And I think that's just a job to them. It was my life to me, but to yeah. them it was just a job. And they just want to look at the next young athlete that can jump hurdles quicker than me, ideally. Um, and that I was kind of irrelevant then. So I think that whole, that whole side of it was definitely the only part I struggled with. And but then it probably did me a service in that it made me very motivated to find something else that I was passionate about and to make a success of that. I was never going to sit around and wait for the phone to ring. I have to ask you about the 2006 World Championships. First Irish woman to win an, to win an indoor world title. How often do you think about that? Rarely. <laughs> Rarely. Um, I actually, the medal is in my coffee table that this laptop is perched on top of. Um, that felt like the start of my really high-end kind of career because it was the first medal I won it was the first major final I was in like I, it's not like I've been in loads of finals and just missed out medals I went from being in no finals to being in a major final and winning um so I don't I don't think about it a lot not because I, it's not an unbelievable memory it's an unbelievable memory um but life is so busy now with so many other things that I love that it was part of what I did for a period of time I love at the time, I never gave it credit for its title, being a world champion. I was like, you know, I was so focused on winning more medals, getting faster, the next race, the next championship, that I never stopped and thought, you're actually world champion. Like, on this day at world championships, no one could beat you. Like, this is it. I didn't. Um, now, we had a massive night the night I won and had horrendously big crack. Like, it was amazing. It took me a long time to recover. But... Um, I never, so now I suppose that the, the, I look back on it and I'm like, it's amazing to be able to write on your CV world champion. And it's an amazing title to be able to fall back on. I think particularly in a sport like track and field where it's extremely competitive, like it's not, you know, women's sprint hurdles. It, you know, there's nothing about that world title that I look back on and think, oh, I got, it was a bit soft, you know, I got, I was lucky. Like there was, that doesn't kind of happen. So I'm really proud of it, really proud proud I was world champion 
but I, it's desperate. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. I suppose something happened recently where Jackie Hurley um, from RT Sport wrote, wrote a book, um, a brilliant book called Girls Play Too. And I have a five and a half year old little girl, Daphne. And um, Jackie, one of the stories she wrote, it was my story and about winning worlds in 2006. And I read that to my daughter. And it's the first time I probably, I was probably able to explain it to her now that she's five and a half. And that was quite nice. That was lovely because she was really into that. But she does keep telling me she's faster than me so I don't know how much it really landed do you think that like you said you didn't really give it credit for what an amazing achievement it was do you think that's the case for a lot of high form athletes because they're not resting on their laurels they're always looking forward to the next thing yeah I think I think the really the really good ones and the ones that I would have been drawn to were like that like but I was really fortunate during my career because you had like me uh, David Gillick, Rob Heffernan, and then, you know, Paul Hessian, okay, he didn't win a major medal, but he was a sprinter competing at a world world level, like, um, so I think all of us came at it with this really similar attitude, where it was like, we were literally on a rampage to try and be as good as we could be, and like, we were competitive with each other, and whenever anybody won anything, I don't think any of us ever won a medal actually at the same championship, so like, Gillick would have won European indoors in 05. And I remember just thinking, like, there's no way I'm going to be left behind. Like, I'm as good as Gillick. Like, and we're, we're friends, you know, but I was like, oh, I have to be as good. So then in 06, I won. And, and then he's told me, then in 07, he's like, I have to win my European title. Like, I can't believe Derek just won world indoors. Like, and, you know, then, like, Rob started winning medals. I think Rob won his first one, maybe not in 09, was it 2010? Actually, he got loads of retrospective medals. But so I think we all were like doing these things that looking back now were incredible, like on a world level, but we were kind of like being pushed on by the other person, knowing that like, okay, like Rob is probably going to win a medal at Europeans. And like, I remember going to Europeans in 2010 and knowing that Paul Hessian had a really good chance of winning or winning a medal. Um, Rob had a really good chance. David Gillick had a really good chance. And Olive Lachnan had a chance and I had a chance like five people going to Europeans with a chance of winning medals, um, which is unbelievable. So I think we got caught up in each other's success. And I think that level of like success breeds success. There was a culture there, um, a very kind of relentless focused culture. And we never rested on it. Like, I don't remember any time that any of those people, when they did well, kind of were thinking they were a great bit of stuff. Everyone was just moving on, trying to do something else, trying to get to the next Olympics, trying to do whatever. So yeah, it was, it was mad, like brilliant, but mad. You mentioned Dave and Rob there. Mm. Obviously your friends, do you support each other or are you trying to outdo each other? Or what's that relationship like? No, I think, I think we're really supportive. I suppose for me in recent years, more with, um, with Rob, like because I'm down in Cork, I'd see Rob a little bit more. Um, Rob actually had a massive influence on my career um, because we both, he went to the boys' school of my girls' school. I knew him from when I was really young. Um, and we always had this like very honest, blunt relationship with each other. And when I bombed at the 2008 Olympics, he um, sat me down in the Beijing airport and told me I had a year to salvage my career and that everybody was talking about how badly I had done and that he told me nobody else would say it to my face but that he he knew I could come back, but I had 12 months. He was like, you have 12 months. You have a couple of weeks to lick your wounds and you have 12 months to resurrect your career or you're done, it's game over. 
And that's, I will never um, not be grateful for that because it's what I needed to hear. And I needed to hear from someone I really respected. And I also needed the reality of there was only, there was a, there's a timeline when things are going badly to pull yourself out. I think mentally, I think it's, it's not even physically, I think it's a mental thing. Um, and when I ran really well in 2009, he was one of the first people I saw after the final at Worlds and the genuine joy and delight from him. And I'll never, ever forget it. It was, it was unbelievably supportive. And even now, like with my business, you know, like I've worked really hard in the business and I love everything we do online, but like he will just randomly send me a message or before lockdown, he'd like pop into me in my office. It's in town because he works for Bank of Ireland quite close by and just be like, come here, it's unbelievable. Now you just keep driving it on. And I think we all, I think that level of like being at that high level, um, it's great to have someone else who kind of pushes you that way. And is he doesn't sugarcoat anything. So he's always been uh, quite a big part of my career. In terms of the Olympics, can you give any insight with regards to the pressure you were under to achieve high performance, which is what it, essentially it's one day every four years. How do you manage that pressure? Um, okay, I went to three Olympics. 2004, I was, I would say, pretty useless. I qualified as a surprise kind of onto the team. Um, I was almost like a tourist at the Olympics. And that's what lots of people go to the Olympics and do. They go and they're never, ever going to do anything but be there maybe get a tattoo of the rings, you know, and just like, that is their biggest thing. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that because getting to the Olympics is amazing. Um, but I think in 2004, I learned that, that I didn't want that to be my journey. I wanted to get to an Olympics and have a chance. Yeah. Um, so between 2004, so I left that 2004 Olympics, having done crap and decided, okay, for 2008, I want to position myself much better. I need to build my team. I need to get more resilient. Um, and I did that. And then 2008 came and there was just a whole load of different things. So the big thing I would say about the Olympics, it's not that the pressure for me was any different to a world championships because it's the same people, it's the same event. Where the difficulty is, is there's certain things that are outside of your control to a large extent. And if that happens in the year of an Olympics, no one's gonna change the date. It's obviously unless it's this year. Um, uh, it's still going to happen. And if you're not ready on that day, in that moment for 12 seconds, it's irrelevant. No one's giving you that time back. No one's giving you the four years. So for me in 2008, 2006, I did so much to be ready for 2008, 2007, I had a tough year injury wise, but was starting to lay the foundations. In 2008, the wheels just came off and that was the Olympics. I probably had a chance of meddling at. Um, and it just, it didn't happen for various reasons. Some of them, I would look back and think I could have managed things better. Others, they were totally and utterly out of my control. Um, so I think it's, I never, I think the luck has a lot to do. I think you could look at it a couple of different ways. You could be like, okay, all this pressure to be ready for one day in one moment every four years or an opportunity to do something special that not very many other people get to do. Um, so I... I'm, I was just disappointed that things unfolded the way they did in 2008. And then by the time 2012 came, I think I was at the other end of my career where I, was, I wasn't in as good shape, I don't think, as I was in 2010. Um, and I was kind of ready to start thinking about other things. So the pressure, if you talk to another athlete, by the way, these are all just my opinions, like someone else will feel pressure at Olympics in a way 
I never felt massive pressure from the outside world. I felt pressure for myself because I really wanted an Olympic medal. But I, yeah, it's, I think it's so unforgiving. And I think, you know, even when you saw the rugby team at the last World Cup and people can be quite scathing, you kind of go like, there's a reason not very many people win rugby World Cups, win Olympic medals, because it's pretty hard and a lot has to fall the right way for you to do it. So I think you have to be kind of forgiving with yourself about that. And it took me a while to get to that. Like I was devastated after 2008. Um, And now I'm at the point where I'm like, it would have been brilliant. Would I change it? Probably not. I wouldn't really change anything to have an Olympic medal. I'm really happy with how things turned out. yeah, but you, I, you see people and you see the weight of the Olympics on them. And I do would like to try and remove it sometimes because I just think at the end of the day, it's just sport. There's bigger things. Do you think you enjoyed the process? And what I mean by that is, as you said, it's a pressure environment. You're so desperate to achieve success, as you've alluded to. Do you get to enjoy the process or is the fear of not performing much more prominent? I rarely feared not performing at a championship. I loved this I would call it more stress I think you cannot live life without stress stress is a reality of life I think but what you can do is you can arm yourself with the tools to cope with stress and to perform under stress so for me um I loved loved that I got the opportunity to put my to train at that level to put everything into it to position myself to be on a start line in the championship final um, for me, that was like, it was like, honestly, getting into a final at a major championship was like winning the lotto to me. It was like to get through all those months of winter training, to get through the whole season of races, to negotiate from a heat through a semi to a final, to have one of eight places to fight it out for a medal. It's like, I never viewed that as pressure. Um, I was like, this is an unbelievable opportunity. And I did, I was very glass half full. Like if I was in a final I never thought about anything other than what was going to happen when the gun went and never beyond the finish either. That was a big thing with me. I never thought about winning the crowd, celebrating. I thought about what do I have to do? Like, what are my three cues that I need to do in this race? Um, And how do I manage that pressure? I remember during my career, I asked Colin Jackson, who's like the world record holder in hurdles, um, how he dealt with stress and he said everybody's stressed there's not one person standing on the start line who isn't stressed it's who can manage and negotiate it the best and that became a big thing for me you know going you know i some of these girls are more talented they're faster they've had better winter training they've had better races they've better seasons best but i'm going to negotiate the pressure better and if, if there's a chink in any of their armor i'm going to find it and i loved that adored it Hi, this is Ken Hardy, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. How did you negotiate that stress? Did you use any mental techniques or? I, at a few times during my career, I went to a good lady, um, cognitive behavioral therapist, and um, I ha- she gave me a, cu- a couple of things and I still use them all the time. So one of the questions is she used to say to me, What's the reality in the situation? So I would tell her, I, I think we all catastrophize. So I would be like, I'm going to fall the first hurdle. Everyone's going to say it. It's the end of the world. And she's like, what's the reality in that situation? Like how many hurdles have you cleared 
in the past 10 years and how many times you've fallen at the first hurdle. And to this day, I never fell at the first hurdle. I never, I fell once in my entire career at 500 races. So um, what what's the reality in the situation? So that became a really big um, weapon for me mentally. So I'd be in a call room and if I was starting to get nervy, if the voices that can become loud under stress and pressure were starting to get loud, I would have this internal voice where I go, what is the reality? And I would bring myself back in. I'd be like, the reality is you're in a final. Only eight people get to race. And then I would tell myself that everyone else looked nervous. I'm like, they're all more as nervous, if not more nervous. And you're actually going to deal with this better. So that was a really, really big tool that I used. Um, other things like things that I could control, like... Um, I would structure and structure my day on the day of a major championship final. I would literally write out a timetable of the entire day, even down to when I was in the call room. I'd have certain things in the call room because you're in, you're in a, this is something people, I think not a lot of people understand about track. Like you go into a call room at a major championship, 45 to 50 minutes, sometimes more before you race. So you leave your whole bubble of support your, it's kind of warm and cozy blanket of people who want you to do well to going into a room on your own with all the people you want to race so all of you are in there you all want the same thing and not everyone can have it so I would have a list of things and it would be in my bag and I'd be like okay call room one in call room one they're going to check my stuff so I'd have things that would anchor me so um like I'm trying to think it could be something like in call room one um take your spikes out of your bag put them on the ground and put them back in and that would be an anchor for me because i'd know my spikes are going to be on my feet and i could physically feel them see them and i'd be like yeah my spikes are here these are the spikes i've put on 800 times in the past few weeks to clear hurdles like this is all good to me then i'd be coloring too how do i anchor myself and coloring in two and then i used to have a thing that when i walked out onto the track i would always look at the track um and I had a, a song I always listened to right before I went into calling for a championship final. It was Kanye West, Jesus Walks, even though I'm not particularly religious. But there's a line in it and it's like, let my feet, my feet won't fail me now. So I always had that line in my head. And when I would step onto the track at a final and I'd feel the track and I'd be like, my feet won't fail me. Like I trust them and I would trust myself. So it was like that anchor of like feeling the ground when I walked out and all those things. So, but it would have taken me years to work on them. Like that didn't come when I was 20. Like when I, by the time I retired at 32, I was pretty good at that kind of stuff, but it took me a long time to learn those and learn what worked for me, what didn't work for me. Like I went to a few psychologists over the years and absolutely it did not work for me. Some of the things they told me would never, it wasn't, didn't fit with how I was. Um, but I think this lady in particular, she, broke through something and gave me a few things that helped me and that was really really important for me in terms of i suppose you mentioned it there you're in a room for 40 minutes alone away from your team with the people you're about to race against potentially that's a very damaging time that wait you could go into your own head you could question your technique potentially a damaging time i would imagine Oh, I think um, races are won and lost, particularly in events like sprint events where it's down to a hundredth of a second. I think races can be won and lost in a call room. Like I've been in a call room 
And I've seen people who I could, would almost bet my house on the fact that they're not going to perform. You can just tell. So for me, having that really solid call room strategy became really, really important. And that's not something I learned quickly. Like I went to every major championship and bombed, like every single one. And like, that's something that I wish more young athletes would realize. Like I went to European indoors out in the first round, European outdoors out in the first round, World Outdoors first round, Olympics first round. I did, I bombed in all of them at least once. But every time I went there, I went through a call room. And every time I went through the call room, I learned different things. Um, and I think by the time I started really performing, that management of that stress on my mind for that 40 minutes, and actually it became definitely, it also became a weapon in performing in that like, I knew, I got to the point where I knew a call room, I could kind of thrive in a call room. Like I enjoyed I started to read, like I used to be warming up and in some ways be a bit bored in my warm up. Like I, by the time I was performing really well, I couldn't wait for the call room. I'd be like, I cannot wait for that nervous energy and the fact that I know I can anchor myself and I can get my thoughts ready. Um, that became quite exciting to me. But I, yeah, I just, at the World Championships last year, I was working at it for World Athletics and one of the jobs I was doing, I was in reporting from the call room. And it's just an amazingly psychological place, the call room, and to see how people are in there. I think it's fascinating. Would you say you're a bad loser moving on from setbacks? How do you deal with that? Um, no. In terms of my track life, I was a great loser because if I performed at my best um, and someone beat me, I knew how good they were and I had so much respect for it because I know how hard it is. So I actually, in a lot of ways, was like a fan of the girls that used to beat me. When the girls used to beat me and run like 12, 5, 12, 4, 12, 3, I used to go away from it and I used to watch it over and over and over again and watch how they did it because I have so much respect for it. Um, so I never, I hated not winning medals, but if I ran, my thing was always to run my fastest in a major championship final. And if I did that, then whatever anybody else did, I couldn't control. And I just had to hope that their fastest wasn't good enough. Um, so the times I did that, I didn't, I never ever minded losing. I actually, when I came forth at, um, at World Outdoors, people couldn't get over how happy I was. But like the girl, all three girls were better than me on the day. I, was, I ran better than I ever ran before. That's a total triumph. Um, so no, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a bad loser. I don't mind losing at all. I'm probably more, I'm more competitive at stupid stuff now that I'm retired. I, like I play tennis for the crack and I hate losing and I'm useless at it. And it really annoys me when I lose it. Like really annoys me, get really cross. I'm like aggressive. Like I want to like whack my tennis racket. Um, so yeah, my track career, no, didn't mind losing. Um, especially if I, only if I did well. Like if I ran crap, I was just annoyed at myself. I was never annoyed at the other girls being good. Loved the event. So much respect for the girls I used to race. I really enjoyed their company. I spent so much time with them that nah, didn't bother me. Loved beating them. Don't get me wrong, very competitive. Loved to be better. But if I wasn't better and they ran faster, have to respect it all day long. Move In terms of moving on, that was the other part of the question. Early in my career, I wouldn't move on from running badly quickly. I used to dwell on it. I used to feel like it defined me. Um, it used to definitely make up a lot of how I valued myself. And then I realized that was really destructive. And I implemented like a thing during my career, be like, 
you have 24 hours of a pity party. So like 24 hours to wallow, be self-indulgent about it, give out about why it's so hard and crap for me. And then after 24 hours, you review it very honestly with myself, then at my coach, um, coaches Sean and Terry, and then you learn and you move on and you genuinely move on. Like there's loads of really bad races. I honestly can't really remember because we moved on quite quickly and we learned from them. You mentioned your kids earlier on. I want to come back to that now, if that's okay. How would you say becoming a mother changed your perception of life? I think when, for me anyway, I don't know about other people. When I was racing, I was so um, probably self-absorbed and consumed by the idea of running as fast as I possibly could in championship finals over 10 hurdles. Like that was so interesting to me. Um, it was so fun. It was so exhilarating. It was so challenging. Um, and then I retired and I like, I retired in the June, 2014. I was pregnant by that October. So it was quite a quick turnaround. And I was also trying to find my feet with another career. Um, so for me, parenting, is like the most the least kind of selfish thing in terms of like genuinely the kids being joyful and happy and having the crack is my priority like their overall well-being is my priority like i'm working from home today because i want to be able to collect my daughter from school and bring her to tennis and sit in the car and drink hot chocolate with her before she goes um and runs around and i say tennis like they don't even know it hits the ball like it's a laugh so but like i really value like i really value that bit of time together before she does that today um so i think for me it utterly changed um that kind of like self-absorbed streak that i think you have to have to perform really highly my daughter and my son like i've just he's upstairs having a nap um they're totally the priority but then there's a balance between them being the priority and their welfare but also staying true to myself and that like i'm really ambitious and I love doing things that challenge me I love doing things that are difficult like you know working for myself setting up my own business like we employ five people now that's a lot like and it's amazing and I feel very privileged that I can do it so always trying to balance the like being the best parent I can be for them with also like staying true to myself and being ambitious is always really interesting I think big question on this podcast and it's the whole reason I started the podcast is what do you think are some factors that are absolutely crucial in achieving high performance on a consistent basis? Okay, so I'm going to answer. So say if I was to coach, right, uh, like in track, and if I was to say, what do I want to pick on someone who I think can consistently perform? Can I answer it that way? So I'm not even going yeah. to think about myself. What would I choose? Because there's stuff, there's elements of me that aren't conducive to performing high and I have to always work on. So if I could choose someone who I think is perfect for that, I would say um, a capacity to irrationally back yourself when it makes no sense. Um, I really thought at points in my career that I was way better than I was. And you know what? That delusion is amazing because you have to walk onto a track live on television with what feels like the whole world looking at you and no one else is going to tell you you're brilliant. So I think that like capacity to really genuinely back yourself. And I think there's a difference between people who say that they're amazing and are quite loud. I think there's a difference between being loud, but genuinely believing. Um, and I would say a large part of my career, I believed when no one else did and I needed to and I could 
depend on that. So sometimes I talk to some people and it's not even just sports, it's often in business and their belief is so core and the foundation of why they're good at what they do that, and no one else is giving them that, that comes from them. So I think that kind of sense of backing yourself, that's massive for sustained success. Um, I think being resilient then off that. So like, if you really think you're going to do something amazing and it absolutely falls apart, which it inevitably does all the time in sport and in life and everything else, a capacity to like absorb that, learn from it and move on is how I kind of define someone as resilient. So I'd look at that. I'd look at how they deal with things not going well. Um, and then what would a final one be? Um, I think if they back themselves, if they're resilient, there's definitely other things. Um, I think this is kind of a boring one, but it's important. Um, a sustained like attention to detail. I was able okay. to turn up at the track most days, not even most days, every day. Like Christmas used to slightly irritate me because it negatively impacted venues being open for me to train. And now as someone who's retired and lives a normal life, I realized that was absolutely bananas. But like, I did not want to do anything other than set the foundations to perform once a year, maybe twice a year for 11 months of the year. And to find, like, it's funny, I'd always be very open with like my training schedule. If anybody asks me now for like the sessions I did when I was a track athlete, I would give them to them because it's like, if you can do that six days a week, 11 days a year, and then stand on a start line and back yourself enough to believe you're one of the best in the world, more power to you because it's not easy. So I think that kind of endurance of attention to detail is really, really important. And that has to come from a mindset. Like I just, and I see it in my business now, like the work we do every day, most of the time it's not exciting stuff. It's basic tech stuff, customer service, looking at content but it's like we do it every single day there's rarely a weekend that i don't do some work um so yeah okay so i should sum them up now shouldn't i because i rammed on there for ages so what was my resilient uh backing yourself and attention to detail those are the the three things but i do think your headspace and how people approach it is a huge 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 component in who succeeds um and who doesn't because i definitely race girls more talented train to people more talented who definitely don't have medals and they should for me i i don't want to put words in your mouth but tell me if i'm wrong does it become a bit of an obsession because i feel like in any walk of life that ability to back yourself is crucial i you know i does any some things i'm like this in so um in my work in business i like i set goals i set targets i'm quite obsessed about those i find those are it's very satisfying to me it almost replaces that buzz from racing um, but when it came to college, I just didn't care because I was so busy trying to race fast. I just wanted to pass. I did relatively well when it mattered in my, in my kind of degree and stuff and my master's and master's and stuff. But like, no, I'm not in other things. I'm not. It's so funny. Like my husband would laugh because there's some things that I'm so laid back about that he's like, how do you run a business? Like I'm just like completely horizontal about something. So I have to really care. But if I really care about it, then I am obsessed. Like I was obsessed with hurdles and I still actually am quite obsessed with hurdles. It's one of my favorite things to watch. I love watching. Um, and, I, and I hope, and it's very, from a very genuine place that someone breaks my records in Ireland because 
I just think it'd be incredible to see. It'd be incredible to sit in my couch, look up to tea and go, that is unreal. I know what she's, that girl's done to do that and it's incredible. So um, yeah, there's a bit, of, a bit of healthy, can obsession be healthy? Probably not, but a bit of obsession helps. Final question, because I don't want to take up too much of your day. I appreciate your time. I ask this to everyone. If you have 30 minutes to have a conversation with someone, this person can be dead or alive. It can be history, a musician, a sports person. If you have 30 minutes to have a conversation with someone, who would it be and why? Oh, that's, I, I think that's really hard to pick one person. Do, does every, is everyone capable of picking one person for this? Yeah. Does everyone just pick one? Yeah. Nick Conlon was on last, wasn't he? Who did he pick? Nick Conlon, he picked Roy Keane. So, so I've, I've met Roy Keane and had a 30-minute conversation with him. Um, it was amazing. I'm a huge United fan. Um, when I was 12, I wanted to go to the Olympics or be the first female manager of Man United. Um, and I thought I really thought I was going to marry Andre Pinchelskis as well, and that didn't work out for me. But um, okay, so Roy Keane, I've ticked that box. And um, it was also very um, impactful conversation during my career. It really, really helped me, some of the things he told me. Um, like, this is going to sound really weird and people aren't going to like it, so I'm not giving a popular answer. I'm just going to give a very genuine one. I think someone whose life must be absolutely bananas is the queen, like the queen of England. Like I would love 30 minutes of going like, how do you really feel about things? Like how every day do you put on this front and what, like, yeah, I'd be really interested in that. I think that would be really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sorry if that's her. I want to say loads of people, but I always, I got asked recently about this and she jumped into my head straight away and I don't know why. I think in the past few years, I've become interested in the Royals and I'm like, imagine being under that life pressure all the time, but yet putting your best foot forward every day. Like, how does she do it? I'd be really interested. So Roy Keane and the Queen is quite an odd, eclectic mix, I think. I'd pick Roy Keane or Michael Collins. I would love to meet, I'd love to have a conversation with Collins. Yeah, Michael Collins, that would be an interesting one as well. I think it's too hard. Um, Some of the people that I really admire I've chatted to, um, so like Paul O'Connell, I've huge admiration for Paul O'Connell. I did, after I retired, I did some work in rugby for a while and I got to have some chats with him and that was really, really joyful. Like I, lo- I loved chatting, I loved getting an insight into how he thought. I, I find that fascinating. Um, is there anybody else? I don't get very starstruck or I don't get very, I, there's not a lot of people that I look at and that would be like fans of and I don't mean that in a funny way I just think everybody's very normal and they're just trying to do their thing and most of the time you're just seeing something through a tiny bit of a public gaze you're not seeing the whole person um so I don't get like going oh my god that person's amazing um I've chatted to Usain Bolt um really nice person uh so he's not on my list gosh I would, this is another terrible one. No one's going to like me after this podcast. The Queen, um, I would love to sit down with Chris Jenner, the Kardashian mom, and like for 30 minutes. That would be interesting. She's like a business genius. I know people like, lots of people say different things, but like what they've done with their brand, mad, mad. Go on, sorry. Whether you like them or, or dislike them, what they've achieved. It's mad, it's mad. I saw someone say some tweet about them recently. And it was so derogatory towards actually their brand growth. I was there going, I, I was actually going to tweet them back and start getting into a big argument on Twitter. But actually, I actually can't try and stay away from Twitter. I find Twitter quite negative. Um, so I didn't tweet back. But I, I'm in this, um, this women's 
business group called Going for Growth, and we have different leads um, and different people who have done do amazing things in business all the time. And I act that for me, that's one of the best things I do now because they when we go to events, they always speak. You know, the different leads speak, and their experience and their their very honest sharing of different things in their lives because they're all high performance people. I find that fascinating. Um, you know, like some Marissa Carter who's built Coco Brown and um, now she's got Carter Cosmetics and stuff. So yeah, I'm, that was a really long rambly answer again, I'm sorry. Um, I'm, but I'm sticking with the Queen, even if I'm going to get grief for it. I think it would be very, and I'm not saying I'm a massive fan, I just think it'd be really interesting. Adorable, thanks so much. I have to say I thoroughly enjoyed that. <laughs> thanks for having me. You're a great sport. No problem. Thanks for listening to Red Devil Talk. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode and don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Devil Talk. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. If you have any questions or comments or want more information on Red Devil Talk podcasts, you can get in touch via email at reddevilTalkMedia at gmail.com. The Red Devil Talk podcasts are a Red Devil Talk Media production.